Amen. Good morning. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. Our pastor uh, gets a week off, so he's had this weekend off, enjoying some time with some uh, friends. But I wanted to reflect real quick before we jump into Ecclesiastes on the series we finished last week, which was uh, a series entitled Everybody Always. And we were talking about the the fact or the truth that God calls us to love everybody always. So I've got a couple questions for you. One is, did you or have you found that God has opened up space in your life for you to express love for other people in situations that you maybe before wouldn't have recognized? I've heard some stories of that happening, and so I'm going to assume that that's been the case. But I would encourage you to keep asking yourself that question. Is God opening up space for you to love people all the time. And then there's a second question uh, I want to ask you, and that is, is your faith swole? Is your faith swole? So here's the thing. I believe sometimes preachers say things, and as soon as they say it, as soon as it leaves their mouth, they're going to go, oh man, I should not have said that. Or I'm going to regret saying that. And so last week, Peter mentioned that we need to get our, our faith muscles swole. And so if you happen to follow Kyle or Danny Gavini on Facebook, every day this week, they had a different picture of our pastor in a different state of swoleness. So there, there's one of them right there. So you got to get your faith muscles swole. Uh, that's, if, if nothing else, you should remember that from the Everybody Always series. All right, enough about that. So... So here we go. We're, we're jumping into Ecclesiastes this morning, and I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what your experience is with the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it, it's not frequently made into a sermon series. You do not hear a lot of uh, kind of expository, chapter-by-chapter chapter series going through Ecclesiastes. That's, I, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's a fact. It, it's, it's, it doesn't, it's not a book that people are gravitate towards all the time, uh, but you're in for a treat. Uh, because I just want to encourage you, and some of you have already done this, but it, it's not too late. Over the next few weeks, I would encourage you to be reading through the book of Ecclesiastes. And just as you sit down to read, that you would just maybe ask God, speak to me. God, reveal something to me about yourself or about myself as I read through Ecclesiastes. And so 12 chapters, uh, you can do it as you're driving. You can listen to it while you're driving. You can read it at other, at other uh, times, but I would encourage you to work your way through it uh, a couple times over the next uh, few weeks. It has a reputation of being uh, kind of a dark, confusing, difficult book. If you've read it before, you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but it also gives us, as Christians, a chance to reflect uh, about the world around us and, and really see the world through, through the eyes of a person who has really experienced life or tried to experience life here on earth to its fullness and found that he is left wanting. He has searched every nook and cranny of life to try to find meaning, and he has been left wanting. And, spoiler alert, he recognizes that really in the end, the answer is to fear God, to trust God, to know God, and his purpose is in our life, and that is where true meaning Comes. But in the meantime, we get to walk through with this guy, uh, his experiences, his observations of, of life, his pursuit of meaning and purpose, uh, his failure. And so there's a lot of dark reminders as we move through uh, this book. 
But it is going to be contrasted, I guess, as we, as we unpack it and as, and as Pastor Peter unpacks it in coming weeks, he's going to contrast that darkness, that difficult part of Ecclesiastes with the light that God brings into our life. And so that's really where the, where the truth lies as we listen to this guy walk through his life. Now, this is what, I believe this is what makes Ecclesiastes so relevant to us that sit here today. And, and let me just say, this is the beauty of the Bible. It is not your pastor's job to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. Okay, it does speak. It, you, you do not need somebody to stand up here and make the Bible relevant. It is. Its nature is that it is relevant to your life where you sit today. The job of your pastor is to maybe help create a, a deeper level of understanding Maybe to clarify some confusing uh, parts of what you're reading, but not to stand up here and all of a sudden make it relevant to you. God makes it relevant by the nature of his word. So we're not, I'm not trying to create relevancy this morning. I think you're going to find it right in the truth of what we, what we read. So we're going to be encouraged to contemplate the meaning of life. We're going to be encouraged to ask ourselves honest, difficult questions about where meaning comes from, where are you searching for meaning in your own life, and where is purpose and meaning found. And we're going to have to be honest. And we're going to have to think deeply about our own lives and, and where we are searching to find this meaning in our life. Because when a person decides to live their life apart from God, whether they would call themselves an atheist or whether they would just by practice, eliminate God from their life, they're basically saying this. It's, it's more than just a religious statement. It's basically saying, I am God for myself. I'm going to make the decision. I'm going to decide what's right for me. You hear this a lot. This is me setting myself up as God for myself. And this has been the problem from the beginning of time. And so we want to recognize the dead end that it is. It provides no real meaning, no real fulfillment. So are you ready to dive into Ecclesiastes? I bet you are. Find chapter 1 in Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at the first three verses this morning. Trust me, that will be enough. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is what it says. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all the labors at which they toil under the sun? All right, so let's look at this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is basically our introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. And my friend Sean and I were having some breakfast this morning, and I was reading him uh, the verses that we were going to look at this morning. And his first question, as any good Bible study uh, person or person studied the Bible would ask is, Who's speaking here? Who, who is this person? So let's ask ourselves, first of all, who's the author? Who is the author that we are listening to? Well, the author does not name himself. However, we hear from the author here in verse 1, and then again in verse or cha chapter 12, clear at the end of the book, our author gives us a summary of what this teacher talks about. So the author, we don't know who the author is. But the majority of what we hear in Ecclesiastes is the voice of this teacher. 
So though we don't have a name for the author, we don't know who it is, we do know that the, the voice that we're hearing is the teacher. So we must ask ourselves, obviously, who is this teacher? Well, the Hebrew word for teacher is kohelet. The word means a collector of sentences or a person that gathers people together. And in context, usually gathers them together in order to instruct them. So usually in English, this kohelet, this word kohelet, gets translated teacher or preacher. So we're hearing the words of the preacher. Well, this preacher or this teacher is not named either. However, we do have this information. He identifies, the author identifies the teacher as a son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so this could be any number of kings that followed after King David. But most people say that this king, this son of David, is Solomon. That, that who we're listening to here in Ecclesiastes is David's son, Solomon. It fits pretty well, actually, if we know anything about Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man that had ever lived in that time. He was extremely wealthy and rich. He was extremely powerful. He had undertaken many, many uh, great projects uh, in Jerusalem, in and around uh, Jerusalem and the nation. And so it fits very well when, when the uh, book starts to become un, uh, unpacked for us that it's likely Solomon whose voice that we're listening to as we move through uh, this book. Because this gentleman speaks from experience. He's done it all. And we're going to hear uh, in the coming weeks some of what he, uh, he says about that. So, what does he say? Well, he says this, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, if you wanted to hook listeners in with your first sentence, this is either brilliant or disaster because uh, I'm, I'm immediately wondering what, what's going on here. So I reflected a little bit about uh, maybe classic literature, and I'm not a writer, I'm not a great writer at all, but I do know that one of the things you want to do as a writer is you want to hook your people in. So uh, the, the novel Moby Dick, first sentence in Moby Dick, call me Ishmael. Everybody, not everybody, many people know as soon as they hear that sentence, ah, it's Moby Dick. How about this one? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Tale of two cities. So you hear that sentence, you're, you're immediately like, I want to know more. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan. And then this is, uh, uh, and these are not necessarily books I've read. This is just, your, this is me. This is me doing great research. But here's the final one. This is my favorite book of all time, though I have never read it. That's the opening sentence to the book. This is my favorite book of all time, though I have never read it. Princess Bride. So anybody that's writing, you want to, your first sentence is going to set the tone, I, I mean, ideally, for what's going to come after it. And so our teacher begins either brilliantly or he's putting people off right away by saying, hey, listen, everything is utterly meaningless. Now, I'm either intrigued by that and I want to know more or I'm like, okay, I've seen enough. I've seen enough. So we need to understand this idea of meaninglessness. What is he talking about here? So let's look at it. Now, other English versions will translate this word as vanity or futility. The Hebrew word 
is the word havel. And the word havel, the Hebrew word, literally means vapor or breath or smoke. Now, Strong's Hebrew dictionary defines havel this way. Emptiness or vanity. Something transitory and unsatisfactory. So as I started to think about the Hebrew word versus what we get in English, it began to enlighten some things to me. And so as I think about this idea of emptiness, vanity, something transitory, unsatisfactory, or literal, the literal meaning of vapor or breath or smoke, it started to bring some pictures to my mind. And so as we think about this, we need to recognize, first of all, that this word, hovel, is used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's a key word. You're, we are going to hear it literally every week we move through this book. And so as we think about it, we have to understand what's, he, what's this teacher referring to when he, when he says that something or life is meaningless. And I believe that he uses the word for a couple of reasons. First of all, I believe he wants to show that life is temporary. It is a vapor. It is something that is here briefly and gone. We invest a lot of our time, our energy uh, to build something on this earth. And let's be real. It's gone before we know it. It is a vapor. In fact, the New Testament says something very similar in the book of James. James says this, why? You do not even know what tomorrow, what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You are here for your 70, 80, 90 years Sometimes more, sometimes less, and then we're gone. So I think the teacher is reminding us that life is temporary. Secondly, and I would say more profoundly, I believe he uses this idea of meaninglessness to show that life seems like it should have some substance to it. As we, as we experience life, there is a sense that there should be something happening. There should be some meaning that is happening around me. That my life should have some kind of meaning. But much like trying to grab smoke, when we reach out and try to, to hold on to life, there's nothing there. There's no substance to it. And when we think about that, it becomes very futile. If we're trying to hold or secure meaning to things that we accomplish or things that we see in our life, it is going to end up, end up in a dead end every time. There's never going to be anything there. The more we try to grasp it, the more it's not there. This is the idea of this vapor or this mist or this smoke. More than that, life is tragic and unfair. We do everything we think we should do and bad things still happen. Good people suffer and experience tragedy every day. Life seems futile. Later in this book, the teacher even says, life is just like chasing after the wind. That's another phrase that we'll hear in this book. This idea is that life, is not, life that we experience is not what it appears. It does not work the way we think it should work. Good and righteous people we think that they should succeed and be protected from bad things. It doesn't happen. Evil people should suffer, and a lot of times they succeed. And so we look at this. This is not the way, this is not the way it should work. 
So why does he say this? Why does he use this, this term? And why does he start his book this way? I believe he's trying to show us how we can live life in the midst of this hovel. In the, in the midst of this meaninglessness, how can we do life? How can we make it work amidst all this meaninglessness? So where do we look to find meaning? As we, as we uh, reflect on even last week, uh, certainly there was the swole faith. That was beautiful. But you know, the phrase that jumped out to me was when Peter was talking about junk food and talks about filling our lives with junk food and how that's not healthy for us. But then he used the phrase junk promises, that there are junk promises that we will build our life on, that our life promises us things that it can never deliver. And so I want to unpack a few of these real quick, because these are some of the, the promises, the junk promises that our world offers us. Wealth is one of them. Wealth promises security, it promises freedom, it promises a level of comfort. Our career promises fulfillment, promises purpose, maybe promises influence in our life. Pleasure, seeking after pleasure, the promise is contentment and happiness. Knowledge. Philosophy promises power and influence and protection when we know enough, we have enough wisdom. Our status promises a feeling of accomplishment and power. Our family and our relationships promise unconditional love and acceptance, companionship and safety. Those are the promises that ultimately cannot be delivered on. Cannot be delivered on. I read this morning, as a matter of fact, about a gentleman who was the co-founder of the company Square Inc. It's a finance tech company. 35 years old. Died a couple weeks ago. Likely from an addiction issue of some sort. And he had recently tweeted that his company had set him up for life. But that he could not beat the disease of his addiction. And it took his life. So we look at that and we say, man, that's sad. That that we see that happen right in front of us. But the question we have to ask, to what degree are we doing a similar thing? We're building our meaning, we're building our purpose, we're building our hope on something that could be taken from us momentarily, in an instant. Because there are two main problems with these junk promises. One, they cannot ultimately deliver what they promise. And two, the pursuit of these promises take us away from what's ultimately important. So if it's wealth or if it's career or if it's status or if it's power, whatever it is that we're pursuing because there's a promise that's given, ultimately it's not going to be delivered on. And secondly, that in itself can control my life and take me away from what is ultimately most important and ultimately what wants to give meaning uh, to my life. And so this is what our teacher is getting to. All these things that we pursue are utterly meaningless. And so he's using this to teach us the truth of the fallen world we live in. And so this book, this book of Ecclesiastes, is a long response to those that would say, I can pursue meaning in this world apart from God. I can, I, I can establish something that's meaningful. And, and Solomon, as he teaches, is reminding us it can't be done. And so he begins to make his case for this. And that takes us to verse 3. 
in verse 3, the teacher says this, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What do people gain from all the labors, all their labors at which they toil? This question needs our attention. It needs our attention because Solomon is going to address it as he moves through Ecclesiastes. What do people gain? This seems to me to be a bit rhetorical. It seems like I'm supposed to answer nothing. I gain nothing. Especially as he gave us our introduction in verses 1 and 2. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, which we will get to in the next week or two, he asked the same question again in verse 22 of chapter 2. Solomon says, what do people get for all the toil and anxious striving which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds find no rest. This too is meaningless. Solomon is asking the question, what do we gain from all this energy we expend, all this toil, all this work that we do here? So not to pile on, but continue to listen, because as we take a step back and consider life for a second, we recognize this. Life is difficult. In the best of situations, it's hard. Life is hard. Some of you have lived this. Life is unfair. We often don't get what we deserve, and often we get something that we don't think we deserve. Illness, injustice, disasters, violence, conflict, and accidents. Life can change in an instant, in a moment, Our life can change. No amount of effort, no amount of hard work, no amount of emotional energy or political maneuvering allows us to avoid these things. These things happen outside of our control. No amount of money or effort can keep them from happening or make them go away. This is the reality of the world and the life that we live. We also know that nothing we collect here can be taken with us when, when we're gone. It's left behind. We do not take it with us. And even that which we leave behind will not protect our family from the difficulties of life. In fact, what we leave behind may cause more problems than it solves. So when we think about this, we recognize more and more the meaninglessness of the world in which we live. And and let's be honest, ultimately, a hundred years from now, nobody is going to even remember who you are. Now, that's all pretty heavy stuff. That's pretty heavy stuff. Um, But I, I believe as we move through Ecclesiastes, we're going to see Solomon touch on the truth of these very things. The, the frustrating hopelessness that we experience being on this side or being under the sun. And so that is the last little phrase I want to unpack this morning, this idea of under the sun. And our whole series is built on this, isn't it? So when Solomon says, when the teacher says, under the sun, what, what do we gain from all the toils and all the, all the work we do under the sun? This phrase is going to appear almost 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And let me just say, 30 times in Ecclesiastes and nowhere else in the Bible. This is the only place 
that we hear this phrase. So under the sun, this is a major qualifier in this book. When Solomon's talking about the meaninglessness, he is talking about meaninglessness of life under the sun. So this phrase, we need to understand what it means. When he's talking about being under the sun, what is he, what is he talking about? Because honestly, if we stop right where I am right now, we don't leave with a lot of hope. This life under the sun, I believe, is referring to our physical existence here on earth as we experience it outside of the reality of God in our life. It's this universal experience that all earthbound human beings experience outside of God. There's a place, uh, places in Ecclesiastes where it says there is nothing new under the sun. We know this is true. How do we know this is true? Let me read to you a quote from Socrates. Socrates uh, was a 5th century BC human being. So we're talking 5th century BC. He says this. The children of today love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. 5th century BC, there is nothing new under the sun. We say, the kids of today, the kids of today would say, these old people, they do that. You know what? Everything is just a repeat of what's been going on since the beginning of time. There's nothing new under the sun. In our human existence, in this physical world, this is our experience. As long as we choose to exclude the reality and the presence of God in our life, this is what we're going to experience. And we live the reality of it each day, either in our own personal experience or by observation. We see it happening all around us. Likely today you will see something on the news or you will see something with your own eyes that brings this truth right to your mind. And so it's been this way. It describes our human experience when we choose to live it outside of the reality of God. And so if we're trying to pursue lasting meaning under the sun, we will be constantly disappointed, constantly frustrated, constantly reminded that there is no meaning, no purpose. But the answer, friends, is not to give up, not to throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing I can do then because life under the sun is meaningless. It is purposeless. It is unfair. I guess that's one option. I want to suggest that's not what Solomon would say this morning. And so we need to answer the question, how do we respond to this meaningless life? Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, Solomon says. How are we to respond to that? And so I want to finish with this. The first thing I would say in a response to the meaninglessness of life is that we need to accept that the vast majority of our life is beyond our control and we desperately need God. That we have to accept that life is beyond our control and we desperately need God. We, we recognize the hopelessness and the futility of pursuing satisfaction and, and, and meaning in our own strength. Until we do this, we will experience the meaningless that Solomon's talking about. Later on in Ecclesiastes in chapter 5, this is what Solomon says. This is what I have observed to be good. 
that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them. This is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, accept their lot and be happy in their toil. This is the gift of God. Life is a gift from God, often unfair, often difficult. But the reality is our answer is to accept that it's beyond our control and that we desperately need God. And I would add to that that we just need to accept our brokenness before God. That as long as I try to do it in my own strength and ability, I am going to mess it up every single time. I have to accept that life is beyond my control. Secondly, we got to believe that God is present in the midst of this chaos. And that God ultimately gives meaning to our life. God's intervention, his presence in our life changes everything. It changes meaninglessness to meaning, to purpose. We've got to believe that we need God's intervention, his presence in the midst of this chaotic, meaningless life to give it the purpose that he wants to give it. Life is destined to remain unsatisfying apart from the recognition of our need from God, for God. And God's intervention in our life happens through the person of Jesus Christ. That as we experience and we recognize who Jesus is, and we believe that, this, that Jesus is God in the flesh, came to reveal God to us and to allow us a connection with God in heaven, until we come to, to that point of believing that, we will continue to experience the frustration that life brings. We need to believe that God's presence gives meaning to our life. And then lastly, we've got to choose God's way and enjoy the life that God brings. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says something very similar to this. Verses 22 to 24 of Ephesians 4. Paul says this, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Until we make the choice to put off our old selves, put on the new self and choose to follow God's way, we are going to, again, continue to run into the frustration of the meaninglessness of life. So God's gift to us is, is new life, is meaning, is hope through the person of Jesus Christ. It's only in Jesus that we can find real meaning. And his intervention brings that. And so today, you can make that choice to find that meaning in Jesus Christ. And that will unlock, I believe, in the coming weeks, the key to this book of Ecclesiastes. But it starts with that choice. And then we can enjoy uh, the rest of Ecclesiastes together. Let me pray for us. God, I'm so grateful for the reality of your word and for the truth that comes in it. And how relevant it is as we think about what we see happening around us and the struggle that we uh, run into uh, each and every day of, of trying to live and find purpose outside of a relationship with, with you. And so, God, I'm reminded of the importance of accepting that outside of you, I have no ability to control the circumstances of my life, 
that it really comes down to me believing uh, who you are and what you've done in the person of Jesus and then making that choice to say, yes, God, I would follow you. I will commit my life to you. And this morning, my prayer is if, if you are struggling with meaning and purpose in your life and understanding what, where that hope comes from, it starts in the person of Jesus. And you can pray that prayer. And it's as simple as that. Accepting who you are before God, your brokenness, believing in who Jesus uh, is and who God uh, made him and sent him to be and choosing to follow him today. That's where meaning is found. God, we thank you for your gift. In Jesus' name, amen.